Let's start with a statistic that will get most of us. There was a study done, a recent study done, and here was the study. How many American adults lie? And here's, here's what they found. 96%. 96% of American adults lie. Which is crazy. I'm just kind of looking around the room. Like, apparently, I can't trust most of y'all, right? 96%. Now, now, most of those lies would be what we would call white lies. Um, I don't know where that expression came from. So if, if you do, don't tell me now. Tell me later. But um, white lies, we'll just say this. White lies would be the kind of lies that we tell that don't really, we don't think that they really impact anything, right? So we just kind of say it. Um, they're not like what we would call like maybe big whopper lies, you know, the big ones. We don't want to lie on that stuff, but white lies just be these little, little white lies that don't really hurt anything. So here are the top three white lies among American adults. Are you ready? The number one white lie used by 92% of American adults, you've probably said it, is, I'm fine. Somebody walks up. And says, how you doing? I'm fine. And on the inside, you ain't not, you're nothing but fine, right? Now, you might be saying I'm fine because you're being nice to them. You don't want to overload them with all your stuff. But it's a lie. It's a white lie. Number two, <laughs> 80% of adults will say this. It's a white lie. They'll, they'll say, I love this present. 100% of that 80% will also re-gift it. 78%, the number three white lie, 78% of American adults have said this, I'm sick. Right? 100% of elementary school students have said that, I'm sick. Here's a couple others. These are fantastic. These are some of the ones that made the list. They weren't top three, but they were white lies that we apparently say on a regular basis. <laughs> How about this one? Your baby's cute. Hmm. No, no, really. No, really. Huh. Another one, I'm on my way. Another one, I'm leaving in five minutes. And this one was not on the list, but I'm just saying this is my, my personal favorite. Love this one. It's a little white lie that most of us do all the time. We'll text these two words, almost there, right? And what that means in text speak, in case you don't know, I'm going to interpret it for you. We pull our phones out, and we type almost there as we're walking towards our car to get in the car to drive 15 minutes to get where we're going, right? But we just send that little almost there just to kind of get them off our back. All of us can relate to this because every one of us has done it, okay? Except for, I guess, 4% of you. 96% of us have, have done this on a regular basis. So this morning when we're in this passage and Jesus starts to raise the bar, this is why it's going to be a little bit silent, a little bit quiet in here today because he's going to raise the bar on white lies, on lies that we tell, on are we living lies of truth. And we're going to kind of feel the weight of what he's asking us. He's going to suggest this. I'll, I'm going to give you permission to look at the person next to you. Don't check them out like, hey, what's happening? But just see if you think this applies to them. Jesus is going to suggest, the audacity of what Jesus is going to suggest is that we could live lives so full of truth and honesty that we would actually not need to swear oaths ever again. 
Now, for 96% of us in the room, eh, that might feel like a stretch, right? 4% of you are like, I'm already doing it, right? And you're probably lying. Matthew 5, 33 through 37, here's what Jesus says. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now, remember, this is the pattern that Jesus has been using, right? We're in this message series on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's going to do this six times. So we've seen this a couple times where he says, look, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes an Old Testament law, and he says, but now I'm saying. So he's always raising that standard, right? He's going to raise the standard of living for us as believers. He says, again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Speaking from personal experience, someone's making it white. Right? It's not me. Verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. All right. We're going to jump into this. Um, we're going to go to a little class that I've entitled Oath Making 101. All right. Because he's saying in this passage that you've heard it was said to keep your oaths. And now he's saying don't ever make an oath. So we need to kind of understand. Like when the people that heard that in, the, in, that, in that time, what were they thinking when they heard like about, he said oath. Where, where were their minds going right away? So oath-making 101, this is what was going on back in the Old Testament, back in the law. Irreverent oaths, broken vows, and the light use of the Lord's name were all forbidden under the Mosaic law. Okay, Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know that Jesus is talking to his disciples and also the crowd that's listening. And he's talking about a group of people called the Pharisees, right? And these were people that really wanted to keep the law but they were so committed to the law that they came up with laws on top of laws. And it became super, super strict. And they are always trying to find ways to, to keep it, but maybe not keep it. And so they were very external, but their hearts, Jesus keeps going to the heart, right? Like your hearts are far from me. You look good, but are you really? And so in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is trying to always go as deep as he possibly can. And so he's doing that here as well. He's talking about the Pharisees who, who were trying to keep the law, but were failing. They were saying that they were making oaths, but they weren't keeping them. So the point of the oath back in that time was to be believed. That's the reason why they would make an oath. They wanted people to believe what they were saying, okay? So they make an oath so people would believe it. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says this, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself to a, by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So back in the, in the days of the law, a vow was supposed to be kept 100%. That's pretty easy to understand, right? So if you said, I swear by heaven and earth, blah, 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 to whatever, you're going to do it. You were obligated. We just read that. And why was that such a big deal? Why was Jesus now making that such a big deal? Because of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, this is God speaking, and so profane the name of, of your God, I am the Lord. So when they would make an oath and then not keep the oath, the law said, God said, you're actually profaning my name, right? Now, that sounds heavy, but I think we probably need to figure out what the word profane means. So ask the person next to you if they know what it means. 
What does profane mean? Looking, looking for anybody who has the answer. I'm kidding. I've got it. I've got the answer. So to profane somebody's name, here's what it meant. It meant to defile, to dilute, or to treat as common. Now, I'm just going to keep talking. You keep processing. It'll all make sense in the end. But check out what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, the Old Testament law that you, wanted, that you tried to keep, you would make oaths. And then if you didn't keep those oaths, what you were actually doing was not diluting your name. You were diluting the power of God's name. You were profaning his name by not keeping your word. So people of God not keeping their word would reflect badly on God and change the way people see him. That's huge. That's a problem because you and I, if we're believers, we represent the Father. The big idea says it like this. We need to keep our word because we represent a king who keeps his. We've, it's on us to keep our word. Because when people look at us, they see him. So if we say that, hey, we serve a, a God who keeps his word, but we never do, it changes how they see God. That's, that's huge, y'all. The Pharisees, they had, they had come up with all kinds of loopholes to get out of these oaths that they, were, that they were making. So Jesus here in the text, he's busting them. I love it when Jesus does this. He starts pointing out where they're missing it, right? So I don't know how many times you've read our passage before, but when I read verses 34 and 35 and he says, like, don't swear an oath under heaven or by the earth. Or I just kind of go, what is that? What is that about? Well, here's what it was about. The Pharisees had come up with a way that they could make an oath and then not have to keep it. And so what they said was, hey, if you make an oath and you make it on God's name, then you have to keep that. That's a binding oath. You have to keep it. But if you make an oath and swear on anything else, eh, keep it if you want to. You don't have to keep it if you don't want to. And so what Jesus is saying here is, time out, y'all. Every time you make an oath, whether it's by God's name or whether it's by heaven or whether it's by earth or whether it's by Jerusalem or even if it's by your own head, you've brought God into the equation. Because heaven is his dwelling place, the earth is his footstool, Jerusalem is his city, and he's the one controlling your hair. All the bald people say, ugh, right? That's the bottom line. He's like, every time you swear, no matter what you swear on, you have brought God into it. And if you then don't keep your word, you have diluted his power. Now, what I, some of y'all will be like, why are we making such a, big, such a big deal about this? I think here's one reason why. I don't want for me, I can't speak for you, I don't want for me, I don't want someday to stand in front of the throne of God and to say to him, God, I, I've got a question for you. He'll say, What? Well, when I was on earth, like I would meet people sometimes and they had needs and I would pray with them and I would like, you know, say like in Jesus name, amen. And then like nothing would happen. And I, I just wanted to ask you about that. Go ahead. What about that? And have God look at me and say, well, here's the deal, Paul. Because you lived a life that didn't match your words, because you didn't live a life of integrity, because when you spoke, you didn't keep your word. You actually diluted the power of my name in your life. And so when you would pray in my name, no power. Not because I'm not a God who keeps my word, but because you were a man who didn't keep yours. And th that should <laughs> make us go, whoa. That's huge, y'all. That's huge.
And, and what we know from that study at the beginning is that most of us don't think of our words like that, right? Myself included. We just talk. We just say things. We make promises, and we don't even really intend to keep them. And he says that when we do that, we dilute his name. We treat his name like it's common. The Pharisees were so committed to loopholes, so committed to technicalities, that when he says, don't swear by Jerusalem, do you know that they had come up with a, a phrase, by Jerusalem and toward Jerusalem? So if you swore by Jerusalem, you didn't have to keep it if you didn't want to. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, you had to do what you said. Who can keep up with this stuff, right? Like this, is, this is more complicated than the tax code. Exactly what was I saying and which, which direction was I facing when I said it? It was all designed, the Old Testament's oaths were designed to be believed. Like I'm making an oath because you could count on what I'm saying. When we went to Rio on a mission trip, we were told that you couldn't make this signal with your hands because that was like bad. I don't remember what it was, but it was not good, right? So they were like, when, when somebody says something, like don't, don't say okay because it doesn't mean okay in Rio. And so they said to do thumbs up. And thumbs up, all, I, I should remember more from the trip, but I remember the guy that was teaching us, he said, when you do this, it means to the bane. And I was like, what does that even mean? He said, don't worry about it. Just think to the bank. Like you can, whatever I just said, if I do that, you can take what I just said to the bank. You can count on it. And what Jesus is saying is like the Pharisees had gotten to the place where whenever they talked, no one could trust them. And if you and I get to that place, if we get to the place where we're talking about God and our life makes it so people can't believe that what we're saying is actually credible and true, then what we've done is we have dropped the ball with the greatest message the world's ever known. We have got to get to the place where when we say what we say, it's to the bank, man. You can count on it. We just sang a song in worship about God's promises, and the phrase was over and over and over, like, you can count on me. You can count on me, man. We can count on God. The question in this passage is Jesus is saying, hey, but can they count on you? Because you represent him. You represent him. Now, I want to show you a quick clip from a, a movie. Um, it's, it's not current. <laughs> it's like 20 years old. And here's how we know, because at the very beginning, you're going to see him pull out a cell phone and whip up an antenna. I love that, right? You're like, yeah, this is not current. But the message in it is so good, just about the power of our word and the power of our promises. Um, you've probably seen it before. It's, it's called Hook, and it's got Robin Williams in it. So just check this out. All right, so Jesus is saying that when we make oaths and break oaths, we're actually cheapening God's name, right? So people don't believe us. So I don't know if you've seen that movie or not, but if you watch that movie and go all the way through, Every time the father says, my word is my bond, how much do you think that, um, his son believes him? Not that much, right? Because he's lost some credibility. He said, my word is my bond, and then he didn't show up. So when we speak oaths, we speak promises, and we don't keep them, what I need you to see is what Jesus is saying. He's like, that's a big problem. Obviously, in our culture, we throw these things around all the time. And we don't think of them quite as, as deeply maybe as God does. But it's a big deal to God that we keep our word, that when we say something, we mean it and we do it. So what Jesus is going to propose here is a solution. Thank goodness, right? How many, of you, how many of you need a solution? I need a solution, right? A solution for this drifting that we tend to have away from truthfulness. And so simply, he says, get back to what God always intended. And this is what God always intended, that we would live lives in which no swearing is necessary, right? 
That's the goal. Now, when I say swearing, I don't mean like four-letter words that get bleeped out. I mean like, we you know what? No, I, I promise, I'll do it. I swear, right? We say, I swear, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on whatever. We swear on the Bible. We do all this swearing, and why do we do it? To convince people that they can actually believe us. And so what Jesus is going to tell us in the next little bit is going to be so revolutionary, he's going to actually suggest that you and I could live lives of such truth that we wouldn't have to swear, that people would just simply believe us when we talk, right? So I want us to go to Psalm 51, verse 6. This is the kind of truthfulness that God has always wanted, and here's what it says. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Now, you could have a, a translation that says you desire faithfulness in the womb, right? But when we look at the Hebrew words, what God's really trying to get across is this inner parts. He's trying to get that home to us, inner parts. So let's just kind of break that down just word by word. First, let's start with surely. What do we learn from the word surely? That there is no doubt that this is what God wants, right? There's no doubt about it. It's not like, well, maybe you desire. No, no, surely you desire truth in inner parts. And who is desiring it? Man, it's God. If you're in this room this morning and you're following Jesus, you're one of God's children, and you've ever asked him, what is your will for my life? There's your answer. His, his will is not that you would go overseas to another country and preach the gospel while you're not living a life of integrity at home. His goal is that you would have truth in your inner parts, that you would be a person, a man, a woman of integrity in your inner parts. The word truth, the Hebrew word is emeth. Here's what it means. Faithfulness, sureness, reliability, and stability. Now, you, you'll be picking these things apart in community group, asking yourself questions this week in your groups, but I'll just kind of give you a head start. Okay, listen to those four words again. Faithfulness, sureness, reliability, and stability. And answer this question. Do those words describe you? Ask a different question. Would people who know you say that those words describe you? You desire truth. And where does he desire it? In the inner Parts. This is a fun Hebrew word. It's tukah. Doesn't that sound like a bird? Tukah, right? It's this Hebrew word tukah, and, and it, it means inner part, hidden part. So if your translation says in the womb, the reason it says in the womb is because you can't see in the womb. Well, I mean, you can take those super cool 3D ultrasound pictures, which <laughs> your baby looks cute, right? Anyway. <laughs> Those always freak me out, right? Like, um, ultrasounds are weird. Like, ultrasound, they're like, there, there, there's your baby. I'm, I'm like, yeah, where, where, right? Where is the, where, the worst dad ever? So, but it, the womb is hidden. And so that's one reason why your translation says womb, right? But the word actually means kidney. And if you go a little bit further, it means more than kidney. It means the part of the kidney that's covered by fat. Now, your kidney is covered with fat, and you can exercise all you want, and it's still going to have fat because the way the kidney is designed is it's the kidney, and then there's this outer 
rim around the kidney that's kind of hard, and then there's two layers of fat around that layer to keep the kidney protected. Now, just follow what God's saying. When I say the word cover-up, what do you think? We think bad stuff, right? We think of a crime. We think of something that we don't want people to know about ourselves. We think of some hidden sin. I'm going to cover that up so nobody can see it. And what God is saying here is, how much does he want us to have truth? Surely, you desire truth so much in me that if you could reach into the deepest part of who I am and pull back that layer of fat under the fat, it's where you desire truth. The place that you and I would normally hide bad things, he wants people to see that part of us and see truth there. Now you can begin to see why Jesus says, don't make an oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Say yes, say no. You don't need to add anything to it because if you have truth at that depth of your life, then people will believe what you say because your life will have backed it up. That's huge. God wants us to have those kind of lives. So here's how we're going to close this morning. This is a little weird title. But we're gonna, I'm going to ask you some questions. Um, again, you'll, you'll discuss these more in community group, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a head start. And I have called these under-the-fat questions. Okay? So if we could pull that layer of fat back, fat back, I said it. I heard it. I heard it. We're in the South, y'all. If we could pull that layer of fat back and see who we really are at the core, these are questions that can help us get there, okay? You don't have to answer them out loud. I just want you to think as we walk through them. Can I be trusted? Think back to that movie clip. Peter's son wouldn't have trusted him the next time he said, my word is my bond. Can I be trusted? The words that I speak, the promises that I make, can I be trusted? Let me ask you, let's, let's even back up. Let's make that a little bit deeper. First of all, can I be believed, right? So if I made a promise to Abby, I mean, the question is, can I be believed, right? Abby's like, uh, if she says I can believe Paul, then the question is, well, can she trust me? Like, I believe you're telling me the truth, but can I actually trust you? These are huge questions. Second question, how much weight do my words carry? Can I just submit that your words are heavy? The words that we say are heavy. They carry weight if we have lives that back them up. Sydney and I, um, man, as, I mean, as well, I was going to say as long as I've known her, which is her whole life. Um, I am, I am, I'm the tickler and she's the tickly. Right. How many of you love to tickle people? Raise your hand. You just love it. Not that many, but some, the, not me, but the ones that do are like, me, can I do it now? Right. How many of you hate to be tickled? Raise your hand. Like you, would, you just turn to people and say, like, tickling is like torture. Do you agree with that statement? So God usually connects a tickler with a tickly, right? So, so somebody loves to tickle, usually gets with somebody who doesn't like to be tickled. I love to tickle, right? I love it. I love to hear people laugh. They say it's like torture, but I'm like, I'm not being tortured at all. I love it. Love it, right? And so the best kind of tickling, I call it sneak tickling. Do you know what that is? 
Sneak tickling is like when you pull somebody in close to hug them, but then you're like right there, like you get them. They don't know what's coming, you know. Um, Sydney is super ticklish at her neck area. I mean, so ticklish there that you don't have to touch it. Like if you just put your hand out towards her, she'd be like, and she, I mean, and she, she would back me up on that. She spazzes out, which makes it even more fun, right? I mean, that's why I love to, like, I just, that, you know, it's just crazy. But then if you actually touch her, she's like convulsing everywhere, and it's fantastic. And then you follow that up with a little right there, and she's like all over, and she's, anyway, it's great. It's great for me, Right? And as long as, as long as, you know, I've known her, I've put her, to, like, I would go put her to bed. We'd go to the back, like, you know, get to go pray with her. And when I'm, we're done praying, it's like, you know, let's give each other a hug. And I would, I'd have to tickle her. It's just, I have to, right? And so um, I'm the dad who riles the kids up right before bedtime, right? I'm the guy that walks out and Wendy's like, seriously? You had one job. One job. And now I have five more before I can go to bed because you failed your one job. One job, Paul. Just put him to bed. I'm like, I put her into bed. And then I got into bed with her. And then we, I tickled her and she's blah, blah, and all that stuff. And it was great, you know. And now she's like, I need water, you know, the whole deal. It got to the point that, I mean, every single night she knew it was going to happen. She knew it. And, um, and I did too. It was great. It's premeditated for sure. Um, but, at, but at the end, like, I want to give her a hug good night, and she wouldn't want to hug me because she knew, you know, it's not a sneak attack anymore because she knew if I hug dad, he's going to, like, pull me in close, and he's going to start tickling me. And she, she's like, I, no, I'm, I'm good. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, we're going to we're gonna have to hug. She's like, no. Yes. Wait, yes, why, are we, why not? Because you're going to tickle me. No, no, I, I won't tickle you. No, I won't. I won't tickle you, I promise. It's like, no, you, you will, because I had said that before. Right? Now, listen, some of us in the room are going to have the thought, Paul, you're making too much of this. But I can't be because Jesus is talking about it. And so I started to say this to Sydney. Instead of saying, I promise, I would just look at her and I'd say, I'm not going to tickle you. I give you my word. And she'd be like, mm, no. No, Sydney, I give you my word. And if I give you my word, I won't go back on it. So the first couple times that she tested out, you know, it was like this. Right? And you know, I mean, ticklers in the house, how badly did I want to tickle her? Right? When she finally trusted me enough to give me a hug, I mean, she was at the most vulnerable. It would have been the best sneak tickle ever. But I couldn't do it because I gave her my word. And I can say this. I've never tickled Sydney after saying, I give you my word. And I never will. And the cool thing about it is, you know, we joke around all the time. I mean, we do a lot of laughing in our house and a lot of joking and we kid a lot. But she knows this. If I looked at my daughter and said, I give you my word, she knows. She can take that to the bank. I'm not the perfect parent, right? Another story's coming to prove that. But... In this instance, how much weight do your words carry? And I will tell you this. In our family, the words from dad that say, I give you my word with Sydney, it carries a lot of weight. And I refuse to cheapen it by breaking the promise. That's what Jesus is getting to. And to get to that point, we have to get convicted under the fat 
at the core of who we are that we want truth to be there. And it's okay to be uncomfortable right now. It's okay to be a little bit convicted. That's the point, right? Because he's leading us to a place where we will be so full of truth that truth comes out every time we speak. Third question. Do I need to add to my promises in order to make them more believable? Don't we do this all the time? No, no, really. No, really. Uh, No, this is it. I mean it. Well, if you have to say that, then it means that you have a track record of not meaning it all the other times you said that. Right? That's what Jesus is getting at. We add stuff. We add to the, if, if we can just say yes and no, and people know that our yes is yes and our no is no, then we feel no pressure to add anything in order to make it more believable. Fourth question. Can I deliver what I promised? Luke 14, 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Sometimes we make promises that we know we can't keep. I think that's a really good question. Can I deliver what I promise? And maybe ask it before you promise it, right? Because here's the thing. We get some feedback, some really positive feedback when we promise certain things. Every parent in the house, you want to be a rock star in your home? Today, go home and look at your kids and go, we're going to Disney. And guess what they're going to do? Every kid reacts the same way. Really? Oh. Now they're like, what? Disney! They do the ears dancing all around, you know. And in that moment, you'll get the feedback of, man, we are awesome. We are going to Disney. Then you check your account. And you know there's no way in the world you're going to Disney. You check your credit card. You can't even use those because they're maxed out. There's no way you're going to Disney. But you promised and you can't deliver. And the Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I learned this as a newlywed. Because when we got married, I was poor. And all of my worldly belongings fit in the first fourth of a 1995-a-day U-Haul. Okay? Wendy, on the other hand, was gainfully employed. woo And she was working hard. She was saving money. So when we got married, she funded our wedding. All I brought to the table was me. No value added to the wedding at all. Just I showed up, right? And when it was all paid for, she had some money left over. And we were living in a duplex, 700-square-foot duplex, stand in the middle, turn around, see the whole thing. And I remember we had this couch. It was nasty. It was, like, brown, and it didn't match anything. I mean, none of our furniture matched. And she's like, Paul, we got some money left over from the wedding. Would it be okay if we got a couch? And I was like, sure. I mean, I don't think you have to ask my permission, but thanks. You know, yeah, let's get a couch. And so Wendy is, um, let's see. I love this about Wendy. She's a better shopper than buyer, right? She will shop and shop and shop, and she will find the best deal, find the couch she wants. And so she finally, like, it's like six months later, she found the couch. And she's like, I found the couch. And I was like, great, did you buy it? And she said, no, not yet. I was like, why not? Well, there might be a sale. So we waited longer. And eventually, it was about a year later, that couch went on sale, and she was like, let's do it. Well, in the meantime of that year, God had called me to go to seminary. And I knew that we needed to use the money to go to seminary. And I said to Wendy, we got to use the money for seminary. I don't think we can get the couch. And she said... 
but you promised. Fifth question. Are my words partnering with the father of truth or the father of lies? A couple verses and then we'll wrap up that story. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 17, 17, he prays for us and says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God is the father of truth. John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44, this is a really interesting scripture. Jesus said to them, and he's talking to Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Verse 43, why is my language not clear to you? You ever heard somebody talk in another language and you're like, I, they sound so excited, but I don't know what they're saying. Sometimes little kids can be like that with me. Like little kids who speak English, but they're speaking kid in the moment. They're so excited and they're just talking a mile a minute. And I'm just like, sounds great. I have no idea what you're saying. I'm looking at their parents and they're like, Jesus is saying, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Listen to this. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Are my words partnering with the father of truth or the father of lies? And I would just submit this. And I use this story about me and Wendy because all of us have made promises that eventually we couldn't deliver on. Sometimes we did it intentionally. And sometimes in our case, I, don't I didn't have control over God, right? He called us to do something that he didn't call us to a year earlier. But in that moment, if I had just looked at Wendy and said, well, I mean, just deal with it. Then what I've just done is partnered with the father of lies. Because here's what Satan does all the time. He always overpromises and he always underdelivers. He always tells you, no, nah, man, it's going to be great. And then you start doing it and you're like, oh, my, if I didn't know it was going to turn like this, I never would have done it. Can we all say amen to that? And so when we act like the thing that I said that got your hopes up and then I broke you doesn't matter, we have partnered with the father of lies. And he would rather us partner with the father of truth. And so in that situation... That taught me the value of my words. And instead of saying to Wendy, well, too bad about the couch. He called us to go to seminary, so just get over it. I was like, man, I'm so sorry. I don't think I even thought that way. But now that you mention it, you did say, let's get a couch, and we can't. I've got to go to, we, go to seminary. But I promise we are going to get a couch, and I see what I have done to you, and I should never have made a promise that I couldn't have delivered on. Will you forgive me? And then we got a couch. It was a long time after that. But we got a couch. And it was awesome. And it was comfortable because it wasn't a sleeper sofa because those are awful. It was fantastic. But in the moment, to bring truth into that moment and say, I, I let you down. And I'm going to make it right because I don't, want my, I don't want my lie to reflect on a father of truth. And I say all that because, to be honest with you, as we close this morning, that's what most of us are going to need to do, right? Not 4% of you. 4% of you are like, this is the most boring, unrelated message ever because you never lie. But the 96% of us that struggle with this, 
as I close this in prayer, God's going to start to drop names into our hearts. People that we might need to make a phone call with and just simply say, you know what? I, I said something, I didn't back it up. And God's convicted me of that. And I just wanted to say I'm sorry. And then whatever happens beyond that is up to them and God, right? But I want, to, I want to take some time here at the end. I want you to close your eyes. Go ahead and do that now. You're not going to come to the altar this morning. I'm just going to let you sit with the Lord. And I'm going to pray over you that the Holy Spirit would lead you to lives of truth. See, His Word is truth, and it cuts us. Hebrews 4.12 says that His Word cuts us to the core of who we are. And then verse 13 is the part that we don't like to talk about. It says that when He cuts us, He actually exposes everything in us. So that heart, the part that's under the fat, He cuts down through the Word to that. That's why this morning as we talked about this, most of us in the room, myself included as I preach it, we're kind of like, ugh, this is tough because His Word is cutting us to the core of who we are and exposing who we are. But here's the good news. When he cuts us like that, guess what he does? He plants truth into the deepest part of who we are. And this morning, he's planting truth into your inner parts. And it's going to grow and it's going to bear fruit because he desires, surely you desire truth in my inner parts. Under the fat, the part of my life that I would have want to keep covered up and let nobody ever see in that place, God, you desire truth. So, Lord, this morning as we close, I just pray over this house, God. I pray that we would be people who can say yes and can say no and don't need to add anything to it. And our track record would be a life of integrity, God, that, that people can trust and that even more than that, points them to trust in you. You are our Father, and you are truth. And this morning, God, we make a decision to partner with you. God, I pray you put a guard over our mouths. Help us, Lord, not to promise what we can't deliver. Help us to be people that can be trusted. Help us to be people who don't need to add anything to a promise that can Say to somebody, I give you my word, and man, they can take it to the bank. We thank you for your faithfulness, God, because this is who you're building. This whole sermon is about kingdom citizens, and this is who we are, God. And now we're asking that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to match our lives to who you say we are. In your name, Jesus, amen.